am I glad to see all of you this evening? How's everybody doing tonight? No, I really mean it. It's not a rhetorical question. No, it was. It was rhetorical. He arose a victor from the dark domain and he lives forever with the saints to reign. The Apostle Paul, in chastising the Corinthians for their, uh, their practices of taking one another to court, asks them, do they not understand their destiny? Do you not understand? He says, does any one of you, when he has a case against his neighbor, dare to go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? The saints will judge the world. You know, I love our hymns. This is my father's world. It's his, but the saints, those are the super Christians, right? Well, in a way, yeah, every believer who's united to Jesus Christ by the baptism of the Holy Spirit is set apart or sanctified. That's what a saint is, a set apart one to God. And so that's you. You will judge the world. 1 Corinthians 6, 2. If the world is judged by you, are you not competent to constitute the smallest law courts? So can't you make uh, determinations within your, own, um, within your own group when there's a, a need uh, to make an adjudication is his challenge. And the answer is, yeah, uh, we can. We can do that if we could just be competent. And so it's a, um, it's a very challenging suggestion. Do you not know that we will judge angels? Wow. Our destiny is to judge the angels. doesn't say you're judging them now. Your destiny is to judge the angels. Uh, maybe I want to go back to the Catholic view and say that's talking about super-Christians. You know, people that some priests can get together and vote on whether or not miracles were performed in fact. <laughs> because that's a pretty heavy responsibility being placed on believers in the in the end, I have begun to speak. So let's, let's pay attention now to what we're talking about. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, unless you have it memorized, you need to hear that, uh, do you not know that we will judge the angels how much more matters of this life? So if you have law courts dealing with matters of this life, do you not appoint them as judges who are of no account to the church? Do you appoint them as judges who are of no account to the church? I say this to your shame. Is it so that there is not among you one wise man who will be able to decide between his brethren, but brother goes to law with brethren that before the unbelievers? We are not judging the world yet. We are not judging the angels yet. That's coming. We're over here in anticipation of this coming joy, this coming freedom of creation, set, being set free from the world from the bondage, I'm sorry, from the bondage of, of the curse of the world. And so we're not there yet, but we're supposed to live with that in mind. So don't submit yourself. You see what he's saying? It's, it's, that's a very challenging passage when you think about the application. Well, we're tonight in 1 John chapter 1, where we're learning about fellowship with God, and we're going to put it to bed with an exhaustive summary of the five rationales of 1 John 1 as promised. So let's take a moment for silent prayer. Uh, we'll open and uh,
commit the time to the Lord. Father, we come to this life with our plans because that's how you've made us. You require us to plan, to take the resources and the instructions you've given us and then put our, um, our best plans in place to accomplish what you've required of us, but always contingent, Father, contingent upon what you want to do with us, what you want out of our lives. And Father, we do not understand all that you've said in the Scriptures, but we trust you that you're feeding us what we need for the moments, the hours, the days, weeks, months ahead. That what we'll study tonight, in fact, will equip us for what we need to do tomorrow and in the coming days. Father, it's our plan that whatever we do with our lives will be pleasing to you. That's our ambition, our aim. It's our ultimate design criterion that we would consider the Scriptures before we make a move. That what we do would be from your wisdom, pleasing in your sight. Heavenly Father, we know that this is your way. You haven't spoken to the specific particulars of most of our choices. You've given us the worldview, the perspective, the wisdom, so that in prayer, constant prayer, doing what we do in worship to you, You've given us these decisions to make, and then we do fearfully, Father, in the fear of, of, of you. We make our decisions in a way that will be pleasing to you. Equip us tonight, Father, to think this way. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. The Apostle John, with his incredible penetrating logic in 1 John chapter 1, verses 5-10, through 10, gives us five rationales, as we saw on Sunday. We spoke also in summary last Wednesday, and so I want to go through these five rationales of 1 John and then work through um, an exhaustive summary of uh, what he's doing in 1 John 1, 5. Let's read it in the New American Standard. This is the message we have from heard from him and announced to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. Remember, metaphysics first, the nature of God, theology proper, he is light and no darkness. I can t- consider this a reference to his divine righteousness on display as light. If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. I'm saying there are five rationales, five sort of if-then type statements that are logical and take some thought. You have to think about it. If A, then B. He does it five times. One of them isn't really an if-then, but it's set up like one. Verse 9 isn't an if-then. kind of is, but it's not really an, exact, an exactly uh, P, then Q syllogism. But he says the first one, if we say we have fellowship with God when walking in darkness, if this is what we're doing, but this is also what we're doing, we're saying one thing, but doing another Well, that's Christian hypocrisy. This is the problem that may be true for any one of us at any given moment when we're not really looking at ourselves as we are. This is an intense call from the Apostle John to Christians for self-evaluation. 
Are you saying something about you and God that isn't true based on how you're living? Are you saying something that isn't true about you and God based on how you're living? And so John is not asking whether you're truly a Christian. He's asking whether you're truly living the Christian way of life. And it would, it would be relevant to ask an unbeliever how he's walking. He can't walk in the power of God, the Holy Spirit, to walk in the light or the experiential righteousness of God because he doesn't have the Spirit of God in him. If we say we have fellowship with God when walking in darkness, then you know that you are lying. We lie and are not practicing the truth. Oh, no. Occupational hazard. There you go. If we say we have fellowship with God when walking in darkness, then we're lying and we're not doing the truth or practicing the truth. Walking and doing are the same idea. Okay? If we walk in the light or are walking in the light, I can say this for you by application, not grammar, but application when you're walking in the light. When you are experientially enjoying the righteousness of God. See, that's a, that's a heavy, heavy thought. I mean, it's light. You don't want to look directly at it. When walking in the light, as he himself is in the light. We have fellowship with one another, and, the Jesus, and Jesus' blood cleanses us from all sin. I think fellowship with God. And we have the ongoing work of the cleansing of Christ, of his blood. Which Now, check this out. In my walk, when it's a worthy walk, I'm getting it right. Look at what he's saying. I'm still not clean because of how I'm doing. I'm clean because of what Jesus has done and how that applies to me. I never leave that blood-cleansed status when I'm walking as I'm supposed to. So you can't get away from grace. You cannot get away from the need for it to be the work of Christ in my life. And yet there's a responsibility on me to walk as he wants me to, to walk in the light. Now, again, real quick, what's the alternative to light? Darkness. And if light is righteousness, then darkness is sin. I think that's, that's the imagery. That's real simple. It's real simple. He's going to talk about sin or darkness a lot. If we say we have no sin... Why are we do, haven't we done this like five, ver, five messages on this same thing again? Do, does, does anybody still need this? Just the pastor, right? We need this. We do this. We lie to ourselves. If we say we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. See how that's parallel to we lie and don't practice the truth? Very grammatically tight. I think he, he thinks... I think he still thinks, probably 80s, 90s AD, he still thinks uh, in Hebraisms and parallel thoughts that are rhyming like Hebrew poetry. If we say we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, here's the one that's really not a then, it's not a direct consequence. This doesn't, isn't the cause that brings about the next effect. The effect is brought about by God's character. He being faithful and righteous forgives us our sins and cleanses us from all unrighteousness. But there is a condition here. But it's, it's a kind of a broken conditional, if you will. It's, it's a myst- mysterious structure. I don't think the answer is uh, fully in the grammar. If, but I, I can't really supply a then because he, he interrupts the then. See, here, here's what I mean. 
If he had just said, if we confess our sins, he'll forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That would be the complete syllogism, if then. But he doesn't do it. He says, if we confess our sins, comma, by the way, he is faithful and righteous. And that is the real reason why, upon confession, he forgives us and cleanses us from all unrighteousness. Here's a thought that this just in. (laughs) Here's a really important thought on the forgiveness and cleansing from your sin from any sin that you, you don't even know you're into sin. I don't know that it's a sin. I didn't understand that not obeying God was just as sinful as directly disobeying God till, till not, not, I'm embarrassed how recently it was that I understood this as something to consider in homardiology. If God says love and I say no, well, that's a rebellious thing to do. If God says, consider one another how to stir each other up to love and good works, as he does through the writer of Hebrews in chapter 10, 25. If that's what he tells me to do and I say, uh-uh, I ain't going to do it. For whatever reason, it's not my personality, whatever. Whatever excuse we make to disobey God, I consider that sinful because God has told us what he wants. If in Israel, if they worked for five days, but they didn't work for that sixth day when he told them in his Ten Commandments, you'll work for six days, and on the seventh day you rest. On that, on that day you didn't work, you were disobedient. Because he told you to work for six days. You see what I think? I, see what I'm saying? There, there's an omission in this. If, see what I mean is, if you confess what you know to be sinful, that you've disobeyed God, he brings it to your attention, you confess it, you name it to God, it works like this. God, I did the sin that I'm, I'm, you actually say it to him. Dear Heavenly Father, I know you already know this, but because of what you've told me here and elsewhere through the scriptures, I'm going to go ahead and say it. I'm a man of unclean lips. I, Isaiah chapter 6. Heavenly Father, you know what I'm going to say, but I'm still going to say it. I have in this instance that you've shown me thought more highly of myself than I ought to thought, than I should have thought. I'm going to actually name my sins to God. I'm going to tell him. God, I am harboring bitterness in this very moment and I don't want it. I feel like having it, but I don't want to have it. I am suffering with bitterness that I'm inflicting on myself and God, I don't want to do this. But I'm going to name it. God, I'm, I'm, I'm struggling with bitterness. Five minutes later, I might have to come back and say, Lord, I am back to bitter. I'm struggling with jealousy. This jealousy thing that I'm choosing to do myself because I'm looking at someone else instead of at you. I'm naming, stating the case of my sins to God. That's what I'm actually saying every time we get started. Let's take a moment for silent prayer, confess any known sins we might have to God. I'm not saying, yeah, God, you know the deal. I'm saying actually think it through and name your known sins to God. The promise is that he'll forgive you and cleanse you because of his character, not because of the power of your confession, but because of the righteous and faithfulness of his character, righteousness and faithfulness of his character. If we say we have not sinned, we make God a liar and his word is not in us. Here's what I wanted to say about 1 John 1, 9. Is God more faithful or less faithful than you? Is he more righteous or less righteous than you? In fact, our righteousness would be derivative of him, and so only when we get it from him can we say it's his. 
our faithfulness is a product of his faithfulness produced in us, you know, the fruit of the Spirit, faithfulness. What that's talking about. If God in his perfect righteousness, when he ha- he's the real standard bearer, when he says forgiven and cleansed, what is it in me to say, no, I don't forgive? I won't consider myself clean, having been told that God who's righteous and faithful does forgive and cleanse. Who am I to say of myself not really clean? If God has said, see, 1 John 1, 9 isn't about me. It's about God's perfect character. So own this. Some of you defile yourselves, some of us at times, perhaps I do it at times, we defile ourselves by not acknowledging what God has said about us when we confess our sins. And it's because we don't really believe in the power of the blood of Jesus Christ that it actually did what it did at the cross. This is the problem with bad gospel presentations. When you've got to uh, just help Jesus out a little bit with a little bit of works in your gospel presentation, just so the kids understand that, that, you know, that, that, that they need to be good boys and girls. When you add any works to the gospel, you're saying the blood of Jesus is almost enough. It's almost enough. And you cancel the grace of God. Don't hold against uh, yourself what God has forgiven is what I'm trying to say. I once heard a, a chapel message from Dallas Seminary. They had a famous uh, psychologist come and preach. and uh, He talked about self-forgiveness, and it was this major process that he went through where he, he was able to forgive himself for this traumatic thing that he felt he'd been responsible for in his life, the loss of a, of a family member or something that, that he blamed himself for, and he struggled with forgiving himself. And um, I think at times we get a sense of a need to feel something that God has said is. And if we don't feel it, then it isn't true. Half of this country feels a certain way about governance that isn't true. And they're going to go to their graves feeling something that isn't so. See, my feelings don't determine what is true. And so I think the sooner we embrace this, that God hasn't given... Look, if, it, if, it, if my feeling is the standard, if my inner feelings are the standard, then God, to reveal himself, should have given me, ready for it? He should have given me a blister pack, a, a compendium of pills where I open my Bible, I get a pill, I take it in faith, and then God, through the pill, makes me feel a certain way. A pill can do it, at least for a little while. If feeling was the goal, then God should have done through feeling, but he he didn't. He did it through verbal inspiration of propositional revelation. Oh, that's a big, big phrase. Verbal inspiration of propositional revelation. What do I mean? I mean, the Holy Spirit put in the, the thoughts of the writers exactly what he wanted them to say, how he wanted them to say it, and the context that he wanted it done. And, it, he, and they said exactly what they were supposed to say, and they were thoughts, and you have to actually read them. Now, our little kids like our little kid books, little board books, you know, you get them. This is not a board book. Don't, bit bo- don't get bored when you read this book. B-O-A-R-D book. The little kids have, they open up, and there's a little picture of a dog, and it may have a word, but if they're real little, it's got a little fluffy place where you can pet the dog's ear. 
and a little, a little soft pink nose and you can feel the nose and it's rubby and you can feel it. But that's not how God deals with us in the scriptures. He actually gives us thoughts to think. And sometimes he does it very artistically. Sometimes he does it very argumentatively like here in 1 John chapter 1. And so he says, if we confess our sins, he being faithful and righteous will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And I may not feel clean, but you know, I believe this is how you're made. This is my, my understanding of the summary of scripture and who you are as uh, human beings created in God's image. Let me do a little bit of theology with you, a little biblical anthropology. Because of the nature of God's revelation and saying, this is the goods, this is what you need to know of me. First John 1, 3, you get a fellowship with God through what the apostles gave us in writing. Now, if that's true of, of the New Testament, if that's true of the scriptures, and that's how you have fellowship with God, and that's what you need for life, for godliness, for your spiritual growth. If it's the scriptures, then by design, feelings are to follow thoughts. My feelings are designed to follow my convictions, not determine them. And this is what's wrong with bringing marketing, business marketing, into Christian ministry. You ready? Marketing is designed to make a sale based on emotional appeal, based on feelings. The good radio broadcaster says that no matter what you say, they'll never forget how you made them feel. Because we so easily devolve into my feelings determine what is true for me. And I believe postmodernism or the relative scale of truth and my truth and your truth, it's actually based on emotionalism. It's based on how I feel is what is. And the scriptures tell us no. Ever have this moment? It's, it's a very common experience I've had in my life as a Christian where I have set aside time to spend in the word or in prayer the time has come. The time is now. Marvin K. Mooney, will you open your Bible? It's time I've set aside to be in the Word. And what am I about to say? I don't feel like it. Ever have one of those? So does everyone else in the entire history of the church. I don't feel like it. And then what do I do? One of two things. I follow my feelings and say, it must not be for now. I'll wait till the Lord really brings me in. Or I say, wait a second. Let's get the feelings God wants me to have from what he's told me. And it's hard. It's hard in the sense that I, I just don't feel like it. I can't imagine how that would work. But I'm that person dying of thirst that, that doesn't want a glass of water. That's the problem. And uh, my prayer is that those experiences for you, uh, when you make the right choice, you say, my feelings be damned. I'm going to be in the word and lay hold of my father. Whether I feel like it or not, my prayer is for you that he'll reward you. That you'll get enough experiences as I have. When you make the right choice and you say, I don't always make the right choice, but I did today. Thank you, father, because I know you better. And I have a different feeling now. I have different feelings. I'm not, I'm, it's, I'm different. And it's not thought is good and feeling is bad. It's that I am now saturated with your word and I can even rejoice. And before I was worried about fun, for example, and now I'm enjoying you. I have joy 
and fine as the diversion, the distraction, see it as it is. If we say we've not sinned, we make God a liar and his word is not in us. Let's summarize this exhaustively. First of all, the context of our statement about walking in the light is fellowship with God versus personal sin or the sin nature. He uses both concepts. It's, it's fellowship with God versus sin. That's what 1 John 1 is about, 1, 5 through 10. The context of our statement about walking in the light, which is the, the Christian spiritual life or having fellowship with God, is fellowship with God versus walking in sin. Secondly, John's overarching objective in this paragraph is helping us think rightly about fellowship with God. That's what he's going for. And he's got many concepts, as we've talked about. You could, you could talk about this forever. You really could. But he's talking about sin, revelation, sin nature, personal sin, experiential righteousness, truth, falsehood. He he has many concepts that he's all integrating together. And that's why uh, this passage has been, one reason it's been a point of discussion and dispute. What's, What's it about? Well, it's about unbelievers and believers. It's not. It's about believers walking in the light or walking in darkness. His overarching objective is to help us understand fellowship with God. And so third, the first principle is the character of God. Remember that? This is going to go sequentially. The first principle of 1 John chapter 1, verses 5-10 through 10 is that fellowship with God is about who He is. I believe this might be a pathway for you to get back into your right-mindedness right, right about God when you're compromised when i'm suffering and i'm hurting and i don't like it it's easy for that little lie to creep into my head that cockroach rattle around in my brain that says god is not good because he's letting this happen and this is the cure right here verse five god is light in him there's no darkness at all wrong answer let's keep going down the path to thinking in terms of truth one therapeutic method in clinical psychology that has has shown demonstrable results is called cognitive behavioral therapy. Sounds interesting. I had to take a course. I was forced, if I wanted a degree that I wanted, I had to take a course in this, of course. And what I discovered from the very little bit of reading I did in this field, because I don't like secular psychology, it's all based on Darwinism and, and all kinds of bad assumptions. And, and Jung or Rogers or any of these, I don't have any time for any of these people. But in this particular paradigm that I was being taught, it was a very interesting thing. The idea was that the person that's struggling mentally has, has bought some lies. They've believed some lies And they have to change those commitments to lies to start believing the truth. I was like, well, that's that's the angelic conflict. Satan has deceived the nations, and God is piercing through the cosmic system, the satanic system of the world of deception with the truth of the gospel, and that frees us. So, okay, so this secular approach is adopting a biblical, borrowing a biblical truth. We do believe lies, and that, I think, does break your brain. By God's design, you're not supposed to be processing untruth. That's called dissociation from reality. That's divorcement from reality. When you believe something that isn't true, and we can struggle with that. 
It's like, it's like when you're dreaming, but you think you're awake. And then, and then you wake up and, and you realize that you were thinking wrongly. It's scary. Am I awake or am I asleep? Some of you are asleep, but you should be awake. Shh. They need it. They need rest. Cognitive behavioral therapy is just the replacement of the truth, of the lie with the truth. And so the, the key, but the, also the approach is to get the person to tell the truth themselves. So the lady sitting there, you know, you ask questions until she tells herself the truth. Because I can tell you the truth all day, but until you understand it in a way that you're saying it yourself, you, you know, you don't really believe it. And so, so working that person, and so it's a, it can be a real helpful process. And uh, I think really this is a better way. The Holy Spirit teaching us the Word of God so that whatever lies that we've imbibed are just ferreted out by the Scriptures, by the Word of God. It forces that out with this wonderful pressure from God's word. But the first principle in verse 5 is the character of God, and that's the truth that puts the lie to, to that first thing we believe, that God isn't good if I'm hurting. Fourthly, Satan's attacks on God's character are all summarily defeated in verse 5. All those attacks, as I just said. And fifth, in verse 6, fellowship with God requires an adjustment of our lifestyle, not just our convictions. This is a, an important implication of verse 6. If we walk in the light as he himself is in the light. Or if we, walk in the, if we say we walk in the light, but we're really walking in darkness. Or we say we're in the light. Um, if we say fe- we have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness. This brings out the need to see choices, lifestyle, life patterns. Not just the things I believe in, but I don't rise to the occasion. But I believe it and I do it. This is the whole person that's being addressed in verse 6. Fellowship with God is an adjustment of our lifestyle, not just our opinions or our convictions. Yes, I believe this way, but I don't do it. I know Christians that will say that. I have talked to Christians in lifestyle patterns of sin who say, yeah, I believe those things, but I'm just stuck. I'm just stuck in this uh, sinful relationship, sinful live-in situation, you know, shack up to, to try things out. I know I believe these things, and I know it's wrong, but... I just can't get out of this situation. And I don't doubt that they believe. I doubt that their faith is leading them to actually obey. And they're, they're poised. They're bending over for the divine whipping. They're, they're setting themselves up for a huge spanking. Huge spanking. If we walk is what he talks about in verse 6. So it's, it's not just your convictions, it's your conduct, it's your lifestyle. Sixth, it is impossible to have fellowship with God while committing personal sin. Everybody with me? It's impossible to have fellowship with God who is light and there's no darkness at all when I'm in darkness. That's the issue. That is Galatians 5.16 and it's really important. I think Paul helps us understand John. I think John helps us understand Paul. They're talking about the same thing. Impossible. To have fellowship with God while committing personal sin. Do you believe that? You know, it's hard to get the kids to believe that. Turns out. Because they've become little scientists and, um, I mean, not my kids, your kids. Um, they've, become, they've become little scientists, little reasoners, little observers, and little rationalists and empiricists. And they've heard all this stuff from the Bible. Yeah, 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 you're radical, crazy Christians. But they've also looked around the world and they're like, those people out there have more expensive cars than you do. 
they have better jobs, they have a, a better lifestyle, and they don't think this way at all, so how can you be right? Whatever the measure people have for their, their interest. The beautiful thing is that we don't have to convince. God will do that. We just have to teach and teach and teach and live and provide by your lifestyle a context for what you have to say. But I believe this with all my heart. It's impossible to have fellowship with God while committing personal sin. And there are some things that are sinful that until you stop it, you're still going to be doing the sin. There are some relationships that you have to say, this relationship has to stop because I cannot be in fellowship with God while I'm conducting this relationship. Well, we're not actually physically doing the thing that gets that's, that's stated as sin. Yeah, but you're committed to. You have to break the contract. Sometimes that looks like, let me just paint, let me just paint that picture. Two young people, they love each other. They're in this emotional committedness. They're attached and they, they've got this this crazy cycle where they really love each other but they they aren't married and they're doing what married people are supposed to be doing supposed to first corinthians 7 says you're supposed to it doesn't say oh it's okay you know green light everything's fine it says you're supposed to do this check it out first corinthians 7 all god's men said yes all god's women said okay we'll read first corinthians 7 if you don't know what i'm talking about good if you do you know what i'm talking about. all right so so uh, the two young people are in this emotional, connect, connected, committed thing. The boy is doing what he wants to do because his hormones tell him to. The girl is doing what she wants to do because she's got a little bit of the hormone thing, but she also has pressure from him and everybody else seems to be doing it. And after all, it feels good. So she is engaging in sexual intercourse with the, this young man because she uh, loves him. And they have this tight connection and it's wonderful and it's fun and it's exciting. How can this be wrong? After all, the radio tells us it is so right. Your body says it's good. It feels good. It's, you know, except when we fight, but we don't, we don't fight all the time and it's a good thing. And so who, who can tell us it's wrong? And after all, we had health class and we're animals anyway. Animals are supposed to mate. That's all we're doing. Proper protection. Of course, we're, gonna, we're being mature adults and, uh, and, uh, and using birth control and so forth. And this is what we do, which is right. And one of these two people is a Christian and says, I know the Bible says this is wrong and I believe it, but I just have to do this because it's so fun. I just enjoy it. It's, I'm sorry, I'm just going to say no to God for right now. Now, some of you in your theology will say that's not possible. A real Christian wouldn't do that. Maybe, maybe nobody here, but some, some people will say that, that that's not, you can't really be a Christian and think that way. Now, this illustration is uh, shocking. This is a church. You're talking about this in church? Friends, 1 Corinthians 5 says this is the norm. This is the societal norm in Corinth. It's the societal norm in the Roman Empire. It's the norm for all people. You know the young people are hormonal, and they're going to, so just accept it. 17-year-old girl, 14-year-old girls, they're on birth control. That's how it is. That's popular morality probably 1985. It's, it's a no-brainer today. The, the educated people thought that way in 85. Now it's just the way. But what I'm getting to is that I don't believe these two young people in their emotional exhilaration with their sexual uh, practice are going to be able to enjoy a moment of fellowship with God until they address 
the relationship because it has a bond with its commitment to sex. That's called, it's what marriage is for. The marriage bond has the sign of this covenant of sex and it, it's, it's very closely related to the relationship. I don't see how you could say, well, we're gonna confess our sins between moments of disobedience physically and remain in fellowship with God until we say, okay, we'll take a break and then we'll go back to what we want to do, and then we'll confess it again. What we, I would call that insane. That's a misuse and abuse of Scripture, and it's not what John has in mind when he says if we confess our sins, God cleans us up. Of course you stop the sin. But the young people say we can't. We can't stop. Can't help it. Abstinence doesn't work. It's not real. It's made up. It's a figment. It's a unicorn. The Word of God says abstinence is God's will for you in Christ Jesus until such time as you're married. And then no abstinence, except for times of prayer, again, 1 Corinthians 7. So, what, so which one? If you listen to the world, the world says it is inevitable that young people will fornicate. If you listen to the Word of God, it says it's inevitable that if young people fornicate, they destroy something God blessed and wants to bless them with. It's a worldview collision, and it's probably central to the collision of our time. The Supreme Court of the United States right now is arguing over this topic, whether or not people are getting pregnant. I heard one of the Supreme Court justices say that a pregnant woman is not a mother today. And of course, it was a woman, a Clinton appointee. A, a pregnant woman is not a mother. Why, how'd she get pregnant? They had the covenant sign of marriage. They enjoyed that blessing that God blessed marriage, which is a man and a woman. See, that, that, this whole abortion debate is really about fornication. That's what it's about. It's about fornication. It's not about a woman controlling her body after the fact. It's about controlling your body before the fact and setting your body as sacred before God. Just one illustration of a lifestyle pattern of sin that will prevent you from enjoying fellowship with God. I believe there are other statements in Scripture that say a very similar thing. 1 Peter 3, 7. 1 Peter 3, 7, our gentleman verse, says that if you gentlemen are rough with your wives, if you're not careful and gentle with them and living with them in an understanding way, then what is the consequence of your spiritual life? Y'all remember what God says? He won't hear your prayers. You want to say you have fellowship with God, he's not listening to your prayers? That's what that means. You're not having fellowship with God because that's his daughter and he doesn't like how you're treating her. Right? It's a problem. Personal sin breaks fellowship with God. Seventh. In verse six, we may tell a lie about our having fellowship with God, but in verse eight, we're deceiving ourselves. And so you see this progression, as we said, of deception. Eighth, our walk is a reference to the conduct of our lives. Our walk, when it says, if you walk in the light or if you're walking in darkness, it's a reference to the conduct of our lives. This includes our thoughts, our preferences, desires, actions, speech, or any other thing that can be a predicate of you. If you can say, I am doing something or I am being something, this is your walk. Now that gets very convicting because it addresses all of life. What in your life isn't part of your walk? If you find something that isn't part of your walk with the Lord, it is part of your walk, <laughs> but it's not your walk with the Lord. So you found where you're in darkness. Ninth, God is light in verse five and he's in the light in verse seven. 
That's an observation. I pointed it out before, but I wrote it as one of the points. God is light in verse 5, but he's in the light in verse 7. What does that look like? I think that's position and experience. I think that's identity and then enjoyment or experience of the identity. I think that's the kind of thing that we've got where we're in Christ, but then we're walking worthy of our calling. I'm saved in the sense of being justified, declared righteous, born again, united to Christ by the baptism of the Spirit. All those things that happen when I first believe. But then I've got the life that I live because I was born again. I'm born again and now I live. Walking is the in the light. God is light is the reference to that, that sense of his essence. So he doesn't just have the essence of being perfectly righteous. His actions, his thoughts, his desires carry that righteousness. So he's in the light. It's like the things that God does are this beautiful aurora, this light, corona around him. He's in the light. Tenth, God is perfect righteousness, and he always acts consistently in perfect righteousness, is what I just said. And so eleventh, we are positionally in Christ, and John is encouraging us to walk or conduct our lives according to that position. Twelfth. Twelfth of uh, more than thirteen. I'll tell you that right now. I'll give you a hint. We're not going to get there by 8 (laughs) o'clock. Fellowship with one another in verse 7 refers to your fellowship with God. By context, the two parties having fellowship are the believer and God. I don't believe John is talking about the believer with the believer. He's not talking about believers together at all. The only thing that that you could say that that believers are talking to each other, but fellowship with one another, is uh, verse 3, we want you to have fellowship with us and our fellowship is with God. But that makes me think he's going to talk about how we can have fellowship with God. That's his topic. So um, to me, that is a much more important concept. And by the way, as I've said, if you lead in your spiritual life with fellowship with Christians, instead of walking with God, you miss the whole point of Christian fellowship and you're not useful to the other person. And you might find yourself trying to use the other person to fill something that only God can fill. So God first, always. Fellowship with God is the issue. What if you have fellowship with God, but not with me? Think about that, huh? Matt's good with that. Okay, thanks. Hopefully everyone else is too. If you have fellowship with God, but not with me, then what's, what's the problem? Who needs to move? You have fellowship with God, but you don't have fellowship with me. Who, who needs to change? This is going to be awesome. Me, I need to change. If you're right, don't step out of right and go, well, I'll go over here with this guy. That's called peer pressure. It's stupid. Stand stand your ground. Let the light shine. And the person will either say, forget you. I'm going to go back and shroud myself in more darkness. Or the person's going to say, okay, okay, let's talk about it. What, what, what do you got? What, what, what are you saying here? And then you have a chance, an opportunity. I don't like the word chance. You have an opportunity to love that person with the truth. Thirteenth, watching John's language closely about fellowship with God, I think is important. Fellowship is something you have. I can show you in the Greek, but just real quick. If we say we have fellowship with God, echo. Fellowship's the noun, and we have it. It's a subtle point. It doesn't say if we're in fellowship with God. It says if we're having 
fellowship with God, which means there's something you're enjoying in common. In other words, it's more active than a passive. It's not as much to be seen in John's writing as a status, as an, en- an enjoyment, something you're doing. Now, here's the problem with going too far with that thought, that fellowship is something you have instead of something you're in. Having fellowship with God becomes the context for what else you're doing in life. If it's just an intense, focused communion with God, you know, when you have that intense moments of prayer, when you're just focused on prayer or time in the Word, then you can't do anything else. That's the monastery. It doesn't work, but that was the idea. So I'm just going to focus only on God. Well, it doesn't work because you're supposed to enjoy fellowship with God as the context in which you will relate to everyone else, do everything else you do. You have to concern yourself for one another to be in fellowship with God, to to have fellowship with God. I've got to love you because he commands it. That'll be a big point in chapter two as he develops fellowship into how we concern ourselves for one another. Fellowship, number 14, koinonia, there's your English transliteration for fellowship, means sharing something in common with someone else. Very important for you to get this. I am just, just giving you, by these points, I'm just trying to keep my thoughts organized. I had a friend that tells me that if you give me points, then you're talking down to me. No, 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 no. I'm submitting myself to you and showing you the reasoning process. I'm not telling you uh, that you know, these are the 33, it turns out, 33 points of uh, how to think about this. It's just sequentially, as we work through this thought process, you have, to, you have to define your terms. Fellowship, koinonia, isn't whatever you want it to be. You don't get to decide what it is. God has said what it is. Koinonia means having something in common. That's what it means. The question is what's in common. It's his righteousness, the experience of his righteousness in common. Fifteenth, the common item that God shares with us is the light positionally and experientially, verses five and seven. And the problem of the sin nature, number 16, is that it will be with us all of our lives. So we have a positional righteousness or light. We have the call to an experiential enjoyment of God's light with him, his righteousness, in common with him. And yet in me is this inner enemy that wants me to disobey God, wants me to seek self. Now notice the way the flesh works, it doesn't start off with no to God. It starts off with yes to self. And it incurves me in on myself. And it is all of a sudden about me. What's wrong with you? Don't you know this is about me? And everybody that screams narcissist, narcissist, what they should be saying is sin nature, unrestrained use of the sin nature on incurvature of self. That person's an abuser. That means to sin against someone else. But they do it all the time. Okay, they're in a pattern of sin or abuse. But that's what it means. It's, let's define our terms biblically. Let's think in terms of God. Abuse is sin. When you sin against someone, guess who's really upset about that? God. Much more than you. But we're going to struggle with this problem of the sin nature, number 17. But if we're having fellowship with God or walking in the light, as He Himself is in the light, then we're cleansed. Verse 7 says that you're cleansed if you're walking in the light. That's when cleansing is introduced in this chapter, in this book. Cleansing is first introduced by the status of the believer who is actually enjoying walking in fellowship with God in the light. Is that you look at that person, you're like, look at those clean robes. That person is clean. God looks at them and says, sees that. This is so valuable. Just check yourself off. Look yourself. Well, one big, a big thing I learned in the military is if you've got dirt on your uniform, well, that's going to get you in trouble. If you've got your, your shirt, you know, sometimes I, I see the video later, just a little bit, but my tie will be all like that. 
Have you ever seen that? Yeah, you have seen it a lot of times. And nobody says anything. It's like the, the lettuce between my teeth, too. You know, your gig line's off. You want to have it just all down straight, right? Right? Because when you're out of uniform, it looks silly. It's not, it's not right. And that's your, this is your, your royal garments. You're part of God's royal family, an heir of God, a fellow heir with Christ. If you suffer with him, you're supposed to be wearing these gleaming white robes. And you're, cl- you're clean when you're walking in the light as he himself is in the light. Eighteenth, this cleansing is an ongoing work of the blood of Jesus Christ. Again, that's from verse 7. Nineteen, the denial of sin in verse 8 is a denial, I believe, of our sinful nature. Sin in the singular. Say we have no sin. Say we have no sin. I have no sin. No, you are a sufferer from a terminal condition that we all have. And you're going to struggle with it until you're ultimately delivered. Not from its power, that's already happened when you believed in Christ, but from its presence in you. Well, I don't know. My sin nature seems pretty powerful. Or, I mean, your sin nature seemed pretty powerful to me anyway. When we say sin's power has been broken, we mean you do not have to obey the lust of the flesh. You don't have to obey your sin nature. It doesn't mean that it doesn't have an active pull on you to tempt you to disobey God. Of course it does. Of course you're going to struggle with this. Oh, I feel like, you know, it doesn't hit me very much anymore. And the wife says, yes, it does. I really haven't sinned in five years. Oh, you sinned. Twentieth, confession of sins in verse 9 is the believer's confession to God concerning specific sins of which he becomes aware. That's what he's talking about in 1 John 1, 9. If things that you know you've done that you shouldn't have done, you tell God and he cleans you. That's the deal. But it's the same word as Romans 10, 9, and 10, confessing Christ. So it has to be a reference to, wait, wait. Romans by the Apostle Paul in the, in the 50s A.D., late 50s, early 60s A.D., and John's first John epistle in, 60, in, in 80s, 90s A.D., where we have no idea of their interaction or communication, no hint of this at all in any of their literature. And so you're going to say the same word has to mean the same implication in the same usage in, the, in two different... No, that's not how you do this. That's not how the Scriptures work. The writer uses the word he uses to, to, to mean what he means it to mean in the context in which he uses it. And how do I know what that is? The context. And what Paul is talking about is not what John is talking about in, in Romans 10 and, and 1 John 1. And that's, that's just a view, that's just a problem of methodology in handling the scriptures. And boy, I, I hope nobody ever if, I ever, if I ever write anything, I hope nobody does anything like that with what I've written. Let me give you an example. Um, if you're... We were, we were canoeing the other day by, by the bank. But there were no ATMs anywhere in sight. There were no tellers, no armored cars. There were marshes and froggies. No, no, no money in sight. We were, but we were at the bank. Well, you know, he said bank here. And over here he said bank. So somehow, when you go canoeing, against the current of the Thames River. Why? The wind was contrary. But, but when, you, when, you, when you paddle up the river, somehow that involves depositing your monthly check in the bank. We haven't figured this out yet, but 
you know, it's been 3,000. No, that's not 3,000 years later. They're doing that with our language. No, I said it this way and a minute meant this homophone this way. And this is a totally different word or usage of this word, a different place. It's not an exact comparison, but number 21. Confession, homo logeo, that's, I wrote it in Greek up there, H-O-M-O-L-O-G-E-O, homo logeo. It means here to state the fact. It is to say, I did the thing. I did it. You know, basketball, I fouled the person. It's like, it's a forensic context, isn't it? It's a forensic, there's a judgment, there's light and dark, no darkness, absolute righteousness, expressed injustice. There's a forensic sense here a judicial forensic concept. And so um, this is going on when the, when, the, when the perp says, I did it. He confesses. That's what they call it. He confesses to the crime. Right? That's what we're talking about. Confession. <clears throat> 22. This is evident from the context in which John is describing the truth about fellowship with God versus lies we tell. Verse 9 is a statement of truth regarding our responsibility. 23rd, forgiveness and cleansing are God's prerogative on the basis of His holy character and the sufficiency of the blood of Christ. Verse 7 talks about the blood is what cleanses you, and verse 9 talks about God's character. And so yet we have a role. We have something that God wants us to do, but it's on the basis of the blood of Christ and the character of God that He forgives us and cleanses us. Never forget that. It's not about how powerful is my confession. It's about me seeking fellowship with God through confession as needed. 24th. Forgiveness and... I haven't said 24th in probably eight or nine years. 24th sounds pretty good to me. I like the sound. I know those pews are uncomfortable. That's why I'm going to tell a story before I get to number 24. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> Forgiveness in verse nine is not about our standing in Christ, but the state of our having fellowship with God. The state. Not our standing, that's a technical term I'm using for your position in Christ, but your state. Am I enjoying my relationship with God and fellowship in the moment? 25th, the opposite of confessing our sins is denying them in verse 10. Whereas God is the actor, 26th, God is the actor who forgives and cleanses in verse 9. In verse 10, our denial is a blasphemy against God. Did you see that opposition? If we confess, but if we say we have no sin, the opposite of confession, then we're calling God a liar, we're making him a liar. So that's a blasphemy against God. 27th, fellowship with God, koinonia, is the partaking of his righteousness with him and our thoughts, desires, preferences, and actions. That's a thought to, to have through the day. Do I want to partake of the righteousness of God or do I want to be stained by the world? I think everybody in this room is struggling with this because we're here in this world. If you want to go uh, away from fornication people, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, you have to leave the planet. It's a problem. 28th, personal sin destroys this experiential sharing in common of God's holy character. That's obvious. Your conduct matters. Now, I don't think I have it in the next five points, but I, I want to say, I'm pretty sure that it's a, it's a stupid thing to commit personal sins given what I'm giving up. It's a bad trade. But I really feel like doing the thing that my sin nature is motivating me with its lust, urging me to do, and now I have to choose yes or no. It's a stupid trade when I think about it. The problem is very often we lead with our feelings and we feel like disobeying God and then we choose without a whole lot of thought. 29th. Sin makes us dirty, but the blood of Jesus will clean us up when we confess. 30th, 
All the references to truth in verses 5 through 10 conclude with his word in verse 10. Did you notice that? In verse 5, it's about, uh, sorry, verse uh, 6, it's about um, uh, we lie and don't practice the truth. His, 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 uh, uh, in verse Verse 6 is what we lie, don't practice the truth. The truth isn't in us in verse 9, and his word is not in us in verse 10. So I believe he's putting, putting the word and truth together intentionally, almost interchangeably. The, this theme of truth versus falsehood is one important aspect of sharing God's righteousness in common with him. I think John means this. One way we sin is that we lie. Walking in light as he himself is in the light involves telling the truth, especially about this particular thing. And then 32 Fellowship with God in this age then calls for the filling of the Holy Spirit in which he causes the word of Christ richly to dwell within us. See how those go together? If the truth is in you and it's his word, then the Holy Spirit is involved. It's his filling you with the word. So I believe there is filling of the whole, what I'm trying to say is there is the filling of the Holy Spirit in 1 John 1 when he says his word is not in you. It's not a reference to Jesus, the word. It's a reference to the word of God that is the truth. Sanctify them in truth, for your word is truth, Jesus prays in John 17. So this is where the, John doesn't mention the Holy Spirit, but if Paul is right, that the filling of the Spirit is the, what he does with the word in you, and then John says the word is not in you, well, this is a reference to what the Spirit of God does. In other words, I'm saying that you don't really have access to what the Scriptures are for without the work of the Spirit in you. And that involves fellowship with God, walking in the light as He's in the light. The Holy Spirit equips you through the Word to do it. He motivates you to keep it. He provides, I think, prompting when we fall short to to get back into the light. 33rd, if we are filled by the Spirit, the Word of God is in us, I think Paul would say. Colossians 3.16 compared to 1 John 1.10. Theologically, this is about as far as I go out on a limb. It's not very far. But this connection between the word of Christ in you and the word of Christ richly dwelling within you between Colossians 3.16 and 1 John 1.10 I think is is a no-brainer. So generally, my theological limbs are no-brainers. In other words, they're not really limbs. Like how I do that, I'm just hiding behind the Bible. If you've got the word in you, it's because God the Holy Spirit's doing it. If you don't have the word in you, then he's not doing his work in you. That's the filling of the Spirit. Well, we've presented a lot, and I know it's been a lot to think through, and hopefully it's just been a review of what we've done the last several times, looking through 1 John 1. As Jack Hayes has told me recently, we just spent the rest of our lives in 1 John 1, couldn't we? And I said, that's my goal, Jack, and the rapture's tonight, and so this is the last one. (laughs) So the stewardship of the Christian spiritual life, what we've just talked about is this awesome thing of you have been called by God and equipped by the Spirit who lives in you to walk in a way that pleases God according to His character. Personal sin says no to that. It's a stupid thing to do. Every time I do it, every time you do it, it's stupid, but we do it. Every one of you are facing problems. One of the greatest problem solvers that I know of involves this stewardship that we're talking about. And what I think, when, when we're told that the Holy Spirit is an earnest of our inheritance, the beginning of the distribution of inheritance, that's a stewardship. And when Paul says, be filled by the Spirit as a command, when he says, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you as a command, when the filling of the Spirit is commanded of you, it becomes a 
duty. You know it's important because it's in red and it flew in from the right. It's a duty. I think this solves so many of our problems. I don't know what to do now. Well, what did God say to do? Be about your father's business. Do what you're told. Well, I just don't know. I have any instructions. Yeah, you do. Be filled by the Spirit. It's a duty. Another word that I like that goes closely together with duty, which is a specific task sort of that I'm required to do. I have a duty that I'm told to accomplish. Well, this involves... um, Oh, wrong way. An obligation. Obligation is a more, that word refers more as a synonym to duty, to a bond, to the bond that I have uh, obligated myself somehow to do. In church, let me give you an example. In church, we don't like to get into obligations. Hey, will somebody like to help with such and such? What we're supposed to think as the crickets chirp is that everyone's checking their calendar and just saying, oh, I just don't know how I could possibly, just couldn't possibly do it. Nobody's looking at their calendar. They're all saying, I'm not going to obligate myself to anything. I mean, in other, other churches, not in this church. We've killed all the crickets in this church. Um, but duty is the specific thing, right, that you're commanded to do. Obligation involves those things that you have to be you've committed yourself to or someone else committed you to. And here's the thing about becoming a Christian. When you first believed in Christ, God obligated himself to all the things that he said he would do for you. But he also then obligated you to sonship, to the inheritance and living it out, the stewardship that would go with the inheritance. So you're called to discipleship. You're called to an awesome calling. And, and here's the power. Here's the weight we're talking about. The third person of the Trinity lives in you third person of the Godhead lives in you to bring forth this character quality of Christ, to conform you to the character of Christ. And so you have this obligation because of this awesome inheritance. When you talk about, these are all adult words, responsibility. See, these are the solutions to my problems. My problems are things that I'm afraid of losing or that I have lost and I can't get back or, or fear of something. The problems that I have in life are all based on loss. But what I'm talking about here in terms of these words, duty and obligation and responsibility, these are the things that I can't get away from. If it's a binding duty on me, like love one another as I've loved you, let's solve some problems because it reminds me of privilege. I have the Holy Spirit of God living in me. What we're doing is we're thinking less of ourselves than we ought to think when we don't embrace our duty, our obligation, appreciate our responsibility because of our privilege. I think this solves a lot of problems. It's the commands of the New Testament. It's the call God has on your life. To tell me to love in the power or the, to the standard that Jesus loved, to love as Christ is loved. To walk in the light as beloved children and, and therefore walk in love as an imitator of God. Imitate God? Sure. <laughs> Let's get to it. But see, you have the Spirit of God in you so that you can love as He loves. You can do the things you're commanded to do because you're privileged. This is what we call Christian privilege. Well, it's not fair. The Holy Spirit doesn't live in the unbeliever. <laughs> okay. You want the Holy Spirit? Believe in Christ as your Savior. It's not, it's not really an evangelism method I recommend. But for those of us who are believers in Christ, we forget our privileges and therefore our responsibilities and our obligations, and we're not about our duty. We're looking at the wrong thing. We're looking at me and how I'm hurting and how this isn't. Hey, it doesn't, 
It doesn't say as long as everything feels good, then be on your father's business. Disregard the other stuff and focus on what you're supposed to do. I think it's helpful. And I think when you, when you recognize that God has given you these obligations, these responsibilities, I think it inevitably draws you to hopelessness. I can't do it. And then you remember you have the Holy Spirit and you're privileged. It's a whole rationale. It's a whole mindset about life. It's not legalism. It's not I'm going to work my way to God or something like that. It's that because of who I am in Christ, of course, I have to do what I'm told to do and the power he's given me to do it. You are the night, K-N-I-G-H-T, the night, in the light. The night of the light. Didn't think of that one beforehand. Wouldn't have said it if I had. You're the, you're the person with the armor of God who has the privilege of the sword of the Spirit to actually accomplish what God has for you to accomplish. And when we say no, when we say no, the problem's too big, we are that tragic person with all that armor running from the enemy. And it's not, it's not, uh, it's not being about our Father's business. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the awesome privilege that reminds us of our, of our obligations and duties. Thank you for the way these thoughts bring about new feelings. Thank you for the power of your Holy Spirit in us through your word. In this time of meditation on 1 John chapter 1, this last time of meditation on 1 John 1, where we, uh, we can embrace the spiritual life and telling the truth when we're sinful, telling the truth about that. But um, more often, Father, walking in the light, having fellowship with you, enjoying your righteousness with you. Help us to have an appetite for that, Father. Tune our hearts to sing that song. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.